Let's sit. Let's learn. Let's evolve. Let's talk. No more whispering in our minds. Today is Let's Talk Arts with your host, Rachel Sara. Happy Monday and welcome back to Let's Talk the Arts. I'm your host, Rachel Sara. And to begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we are broadcasting uh, and pay my respects to elders past and present and to my elders and all mob listening today. I'm very excited for this guest. You've probably already heard him on your morning this morning. He is very familiar around here, but I'm so pleased to welcome Fred Leone. Fred, how are you? Hey, good, thanks. How are you going? Good. That's the familiar yeah, voice yeah. that we know. I feel like <laughs> a lot of people know who you are, but for those who potentially don't, tell us a bit about yourself. Who's your mob? Um, Fred Leone. My name's Fred Leone. My mob is um, Butchler, so... Um, Nullumburra, the mob up the very top of the island, uh, up the forehead of Gari, Fraser Island, and um, and Garawa up in the Gulf, and um, that's on my grandmother's side, and also on my grandmother's side, um, grandmother and grandfather's side, uh, on the Butchler side, we'll also South Sea Islanders, so from um, Gila and Tanna Island, that's our family's last names actually on both side, on, the, on that side of the family, and Tongan, Dad's Tongan. So I've got a big, biggest mob. Yeah. <laughs> biggest mob. I've always wanted to go to Tonga and swim with the sharks, actually, or the whales over there. I think they do that. Yeah, it's pretty nice over there. It's, yeah, it's deadly. I can imagine. Now, like I mentioned, people probably know a lot about you. You just hosted the original 100 as well. That's right. You heard me <laughs> hosting the original 100. Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah. King of voiceovers, king of voiceovers. Yeah. But... Let's take it back a little bit. I want to know a bit more about young Fred. What was it like growing up and, and I guess navigating your identity and what that kind of looked like? Yeah, I, um, I grew up in a low socioeconomic community. Um, when I was 13, I was living in an aula with my auntie and um, Paul Kelly's brother, actually, Tony Kelly, he was a social worker out there. And he took um, about 13, 14 young Murray Fuller's up to Mission Beach. 13, 14 of the most blocked up little black fellas in Anala. In 1993, this was, 92 or 93, and um, he took us up to this cultural immersion in Mission Beach, Clump Mountain in Mission Beach. And, um, yeah, some of the things that I heard and saw there stayed with me forever, sort of planted a seed. That was one of the times that, um, like, a seed was planted in my head about what I wanted to be and where I wanted to go and... Um, not just, um, you know, thinking outside of the the environment that I was living in, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's something that a lot of young mob kind of can resonate with is kind of seeing or trying to see something bigger than that direct environment. Yeah. Did you, you mentioned you call yourself like a bachelor songman. Like yeah. talk to us a little bit about how you kind of come to something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I was little, I used to, um, so Uncle Country, Matheson actually, came into our, I was going to Christ the King at Graceful in grade one, just in grade one, and um, Uncle Country, Matheson came in and he taught, taught us Gurry Nanami, Gurry Nanami, and um, that was my first, well, I'd heard my older brothers and family members and stuff singing in lingo, but that was the first sort of taste I had of like dancing and um, singing. And then um, as I got older, I got into rap, hip-hop, because um, 
it was easy. You didn't need any money. You didn't need money for instruments. You didn't need to have, you know, you didn't have to have hundreds and hundreds of dollars to be able to buy new skins for your drum, for your drums or sticks or anything like that. So I got into rap at about 11, 12. And um, 11, 12, at the same time, metal, uh, um, metal and a bit of um, grunge music. I ended up playing drums, actually. My brother gave me a drum kit. But, um, but yeah, it was it cost too much. Like, he, he gave me his old drum kit and it just I didn't have any money. So I just got into rap because it was easier. And, um, yeah, I, and back in the 80s, you know, late 80s, early 90s, the only black people faces you would see on TV was, like, Public Enemy, NWA, you know, every... Mm-hmm. Once in a Blue Moon, Uncle Archie, and that was late, late, later, like in the 90s, I feel like, but then Uncle Archie started popping up on the screen and Uncle Kev. But there was, you know, the only black people that we had to look up to in terms of music when I was a kid was, yeah, you know, Bell Biv DeVoe, um, Ice Cube. Mm-hmm. And, and these guys were talking about all the same stuff that I was seeing, that we were seeing in our own communities, except we um, we didn't have... Guns and crack at the time. We mm-hmm. got cracky in our eyes, but um, and, and still no guns. But yeah, it was um, it was easy to get into rap because um, I felt like I, I could I I knew what they were talking about because I'd yeah. seen a lot of it. Yeah, growing up. Yeah, imagine being that confident to say that it was easy to get into <laughs> rap. Yeah. I think about rap, and I'm like, wow, that looks so difficult. But how are they so articulate with like something that sounds good, but also says something as well yeah, yeah yeah and so you've kind of been a part of i guess a few different musical collaborations starting with you know impossible odds and yeah, yeah. more recently birds and you're kind of reverting back to your own personal kind of work as well talk to me a little bit about how you kind of navigate the ins and outs of are you following an energy are you following a feeling how are you kind of determining what's next and where to go um, at the moment, I've, I'm, I'm feeling like um, statistically, as an Aboriginal male, my time is running out. So <laughs> I, I'm just hot-footing it. I'm getting as much done as I can. I've got yeah, three, three al- uh, you know, an album um, finished now and uh, an EP finished. And we're doing the artwork at the moment um, and working on another album and a solo album as well that I started on. So... Um, and then a couple of collaborations in the mix with a couple of um, uh, one with a um, I've done a couple actually with a couple of like, one with a, a Grammy uh, winner uh, a couple of years ago one with a Grammy nominated artist that I've just started working on and uh, another one with a three time um, Aria winning folk artist that I just wrote a track with. Um, no biggie. A few weeks ago, yeah, yeah, but it's it's yeah, and it's taken a while. I think it, it's more um, thinking about now um, legacy because it, it's been a while since I released anything myself, and I've been featuring with other people over the last good a good ten years or something, ten ten plus years, and then um, COVID gave me the kick up the butt that I needed to just um, put my head down and. And everything that I'd been writing over that 
amount of time um, since the last release. Just got it out and started working with people on it. Yeah. yeah. And additionally to that, you've got two new beautiful additions yes, to your life as well. Yep. 19 month old twins. Yeah. Yep. I can imagine that also inspires you a lot in your work and kind of the legacy that you want to leave for them. Yeah. As yeah. well as your, your kids you've had around for a while. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I feel like, like, um, I've always felt like um, there's something urgent about it where I want to be able to um, leave like digital, what I think, I think of music as like digital artifacts, right? So when in a thousand years, two thousand years, the arts has always been a way that um, you can find out what was happening on the ground underneath the, the political um, realm and so arts and, and music particularly has always been um, um, good for being able to um, have a bit of like social commentary or um, just tell the story from a from the perspective of one particular group or of a number of different groups but yeah I feel like in a thousand years time I want people to be able to pick it up and I want my grandkids to know what was going on in my head you know my mm. great great grandkids my great 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 grandkids so not only to be able to um, see pictures like a static picture but also have have these recordings and videos of um, me talking about um, you know everything from my favorite color right mm-hmm. through to my political sort of stance and and the knowing what I've had to go through to be able to, um, just to be able to, um, you know, live a sort of what people would think is a normal sort of life. Yeah, it's pretty, it's been pretty hectic. It's been a big ride. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's such a beautiful segue into what I want to talk about next. And you mentioned how, you know, you do want to leave a legacy and you want people to know what you're thinking and what you're going through. I think for a lot of people following the news these days, we are seeing such a, almost a very um, one-sided look at what youth crime is and how that's affecting um, our young mob in particular. And, you know, for us potentially who have different lived experiences from the media, we're seeing that as our teens are hurting and they need help, whereas the government are very much putting that down to youth crime waves and tougher measures on crime, introducing, you know, two new prisons. I couldn't think of a better person to touch on this a bit further. You mentioned, like, even your experiences growing up, how, like, you found music and that was such a powerful tool to see beyond your, I guess, your near future. What does that kind of commentary mean to you? It... it it's um, it's weird because I thought it was slowly changing, you know. But this, there is like a really deep-seated um, systematic racism in this country that permeates throughout, you know, different sectors of the um, community. But and I've I've seen it since I was a kid, you know. Like I'd I'd watch my mates. I I um, one of my my best friend actually said, oh, I yes. We were in our mid twenties, and he goes, "You know what, man? I was just thinking about it. We were all sitting there one night, and he said, I said, what's that?' He goes, "You know, when we were younger, when we were kids, and we'd get pulled over by the police all the time.' I said, "Yeah, yeah." He goes, "I just realised we were just." He goes, "Me and a couple of other mates were talking about it tonight, and 
they were only really pulling you over, weren't they? We'd just be standing over the side and they'd be strip searching you. And I was like, yeah. And it would just be anywhere, anywhere and any time, just getting, um, you know, racially profiled by police. Um, never did anything wrong. It was just, that was, I just got used to it, you know. And, and sadly, when I say I got used to it, it was like, I got used to it because I was on like heavily medicated on antidepressants because of it. it was suicidal. I tried um, taking my life a few times because of just the constant sort of um, you know you go to school and it's ah oh, you you know you're not going to be anything getting talked to like that. It's all these little microaggressions that happen over you know several times a week that happen to Aboriginal youth every every other bloody day and so when you take that all on board um and then the treatment by authorities like it, what i was just talking about then that was in the 90s but you still see it today you st- you see police pull over you know a young white kid and they'll be hey mate how you doing blah 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 and then you see the body language and the, the language and everything change when they're pulling over a black kid you know it's a, mm. come here what are you doing give me you know it's it's this like a deficit mentality. Yeah, it's a deficit mentality and something that I feel like, you know, it for the government to just put the blame on youth, you know. And and another thing is, like, if if there was, you know, there's nothing that's been legislated in the last 250-odd years that's ever, ever been to um, work towards giving Aboriginal people um, the ability to just manage ourselves to just be ourselves in our own communities and to be able to um, deal with things in our own way. It's always been, it's been the white way overarching, you know, um, the, the, the First Nations mob. So it's always like law, L-O-R-E, always comes second to L-A-W. And, you know, having seen it growing up, I know for a fact there's young people that have a strong sense of um, cultural knowledge and um, that respect within the community have gained that knowledge around, you know, elders and, and just respect for themselves in the community. They, they're the ones who thrive later on in life, you know, yeah. the ones that are sort of stuck in the system and, and having to navigate the system as a, a white kid, you know, as a white kid, that's actually a black kid. Yeah. So, it, they, you know, it's this whole process of assimilation and if we're not assimilated enough then then we must be bad and then and then it's you know yeah it's it's really complex yeah um, and i think we're seeing these buzzwords that are coming around like record amount of funding for the arts and and as an artist yourself it probably sounds very exciting that you're like hearing those record mm -hmm. um budgets being allocated to the arts but then for me personally, and I'm sure you the same, like when it's compared to the budget of something like the Queensland Police Service, which equates to 3.8 of the budget, the arts yeah. funding, to the Queensland Police. Like I, and I'm sure you would agree, art and music and that intersect between culture and art can save lives. Definitely. So talk to me a little bit about, and you mentioned your own journey as well, but... You also mentioned off air, um, you were a youth worker for so long as well. Like, yeah, yeah. what is the power of art and creativity? Well, this reporter years ago, this reporter asked me, like, maybe, I feel like it was 20 years ago now. And he asked me this question. I thought about it for a minute and then, 
the answer that I gave him, I always find that I'm always um, retelling this answer because it it it's the reason why the arts is so important to in terms of um, giving young people, young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, um, an outlet, a positive outlet for the menagerie of crap that they see, you know, that they they are inheriting. Um, and and that's being placed upon them before they're even born. You know, they they, it's um, like I always worry about my sons, my sons particularly because I I know, um, the the negative stereotypes that are going to be placed upon them. You know, so I'm always saying, oh, you know, it's okay now, but when you you know you the the the, the country's slowly changing, but this this is these are some things you need to be wary of and you know so there's this um preparation almost for the worst when it comes to the next generation but um something i noticed with the arts was yeah this bloke asked me he said oh why why is it you can go to a like alice springs or any aboriginal remote community and you see a kid wearing like a snoop dog singlet or something like that why do you think hip-hop is so um what what's the relevance for aboriginal youth and hip-hop and not and I thought about it and I thought, well, you know, hip-hop, you've got an MC in our culture. We've got a, a song woman or a song man in um, hip-hop. There's, so there's four elements, you know. You've got MCs, DJs, breakers and uh, DJs. So hip-hop, they've got a, you know, rapper and MC. We've got the song woman, song man. In hip-hop, you've got a DJ. We've got a dig player. In hip-hop, you've got breakdance and we've got shake leg. In hip-hop, you've got graffiti. Well, we've got the oldest graffiti in the world. Mm. And so that's why it fuses together so well and, and we're able to have an outlet because it's this it naturally, since the beginning of time, for like sixty minimum 65,000 years, we've we've had that. So that's just one genre. But then we, you know, music is a global thing. It, it comes from, you know... Um, we hear music when we're now, as, just as human beings, when we're in our mother's womb, we hear the heartbeat and that's the first sort of rhythm we hear. So the arts and music, and I found this to, to speak about in a, on a personal level, it, it was my outlet to stop me from doing what some, some people in my family would do. They'd just rage out of control and mm. go and be violent or just implode and do drugs and, you know, still doing drugs and stuff because they'd never had that outlet. I remember one of my cousins, one New Year's Eve, he said, oh, I'm going to go and do something bad tonight. I said, why? He goes, oh, I want to go back to jail. I said, why would you want to go back to jail? He goes, oh, out here you got to worry about rent, you got to worry about you, you know stuff with relationships, you got to worry about f- putting food on the table, you got to worry about clothes, shoes. He goes, in jail, you get four, da- four meals a day, I know when I'm going to get up, I know when I'm going to go to sleep, I know what show is going to happen, uh, what show's on when. I get told when to wake up, I get told when to go to sleep, I know when I'm going to the gym, I know when I'm going to get my CDs, put my order in or whatever. And he said, so I just, you know, he said, if I could have done what you did with music, he said, if I if I was able to talk about everything that's going on in my head like you are with rap and music, he said, I, I wouldn't be in jail. And literally he went, did something stupid that night and went back to jail for like five years. So, it's, you know, there's that, um, there's... Like, that's institutional, you know, he's institutionalised. But in saying that, that's, um, you know, that's a sad... And that's a sad indictment on yeah. this country when, you know, 
and like it goes back to those legislation you know all those legislations how, how anything, anything that's legislated in terms of um government and uh, in, in parliament um to do with aboriginal people it's always you know it's always looked at as a, in a like you said earlier like in a deficit it's always like oh how do we fix this no you don't get to fix this like mm. we get to fix it ourselves we have the the tools and the the respect from of elders you know elders have the respect in our communities to do this stuff and we have adults and you know a lot of black fellows who have the ability and the skills to do this stuff just let us do it you know we need we need to be able to exercise our sovereignty in a way to be able to say um you know, this is what we want. This is this is what we need. This is how we're going to do it. But instead, it's always, you know, it's like it feels like it's like gaslighting. You mm. know, like, oh, why can't you guys fix this? It's like you want us to fix it. <laughs> Step back. Yeah. Give us, you know, the control and the um, the funding. You know, like it's crazy. Yeah. And even in terms of funding, like. Yeah. We should be all living, Aboriginal people should be all living, like, with mining in this company, in this country. Like, I hate mining, but imagine if every dollar taxed by the Australian government, the, the, gov the government said, okay, we'll give just 2% to Aboriginal people, Aboriginal Torres Strait Island people around the country, around mm -hmm. the country to do whatever they need to do. We'd be living like, um, yeah. you know, uh, Middle Eastern, like, oil barons, like millionaires, billionaires. Yeah. No Aboriginal person would want for anything in terms of monetarily so if we're if we're not having to worry about fitting into you know to society to be able to make money to work and get and and to live in this system we can actually just live in our live how we want to and how we need to as a community and really put a focus on the things that are important to us the cultural practice you know yeah um i think that's such a powerful conversation and in several moments during what you just said I was kind of lost for words and almost like geez I hope Fred doesn't stop talking now because I don't know what I'm going to say in response to this because it is such it's almost like so obvious to us but not so much to the people who are actually determining our futures and when you mentioned like monetary and percentages and stuff and lots of conversations I have with my dad is like he wants to push for mob getting a percentage of Australia's GDP. And yeah, then exactly. to our traditional owners, that's how we kind of like can determine how we're helping our mob and our youth in particular. Because I think these youth crimes are a call for help and yeah. we're actually putting it in the too hard basket by building prisons and, and just, yeah, that deficit mentality. I think what I want to delve a little bit deeper into because I think you're just such a wise intelligent human being we've spoken a little bit broadly about the future for youth like if you if there was no barriers whatsoever if funding wasn't a, a huge barrier what would you put in place to kind of help mob and how does arts play a role in that yeah i feel in terms of arts like a really important program that happened in queensland for years it was the first the first Australia's first ever hip hop festival, but it was an Indigenous hip hop festival over in Nala called Style and Up. And so, for twelve months of the year, young people are getting trained up in all these communities around um, <clears throat> how to, you know, well, to perform. So to to be able to write music, perform, um, make music, create music, and um, 
so the byproduct of that was, you know, learning maths and English and um, all these important things, but also like the industry around that. And so I feel like... Like that practical knowledge. Yeah, with that practical knowledge, the arts is um, a great way to for young people to be able to, um, you know, just to get just to get stuff off their chest mm. it was the biggest thing for me like when I was young and to be able to have this outlet and I couldn't believe that I would be getting paid like at 17 going to clubs I wasn't even old enough to be in clubs mm. but I was 17 going and getting paid to talk about stuff talk about these out there things that I was seeing every other week and people would say oh what what uh, would you what, when did you write that? And I was like, oh, I saw that like three months ago. It happened to my cousin. They're like, oh, wow. So the, the ability for them to have an outlet, but then also the the ability to access cultural practice. So like there's this, I coined this phrase maybe 10 years ago, um, cultural practice succession planning. So in the in an urban, regional or um, urban and regional uh, areas, um, where there's no ceremony left, what are we doing to identify? And we, we, I talked a little bit about this when I was working with um, QPAC a few years ago with Clancestry and every three months we'd try and pull a meeting together with all the dance group leaders and all the elders and law women and men from each community that was involved in the Yawa in the big dance ceremony. And in that time, in those meetings, I always would talk about, okay, now what are, you, what are we doing? Like what is everybody in this room doing to identify who the next song woman is or song man is for your communities? Because at the end of the day, you cark it tomorrow and there's nobody to take on that. That's a whole other gap in our, in our community, in that community, in our, in our children's lives that, um, and, and not just for, for them, but for every other generation underneath mm-hmm. them. So it was about looking at um, how do we, what are the things that we can do? So like, like I've been through ceremony, I've been through law, been through business, and that's a, you know, that particular way of learning is deep and it's been there for thousands and thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So everything you see and you hear and you experience, every other generation of um men and and the women because the women are involved as well have seen this right but then what do, how we how do we consciously make the decision or how do how do we look at it in terms of um yeah in an urban context urban and re- regional context how do we um pass on that knowledge without mm. without those systems there and one way is through the arts um but also um just being empowered so and, you know, as much as I hate capitalism, um, you know, I feel like that's there, there are ways, you know, like in terms of like tourism. Mm. If young people are learning about their culture, they're learning about all the creation stories, they're learning about all the stuff, and they're not only teaching it to visitors to their country, they're also taking that information home because it's all stuff that they might not have heard about when they were growing up. They learn language, they learn song, dances. It it kills me though that we have to do the whole roll it out, roll out the carpet and do the yeah. whole, you know, do 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 and then get kicked back into the corner after yeah. an event's finished. But at the same time, in terms of like when there's 
um, when communities are able to operate on a bigger scale in terms of um, tourism, tourism models that work that are um, giving communities economic um, empowerment, then I feel like, yeah, that that's another way that, yeah. you know, young people and, and we can make sure that our cultural practices are um, intact and <clears throat> and then that, that has a trickle-on effect to the community, to the young people yeah. in the community because they're no longer, you know, disengaged. It's yeah. Because it's, you know, and I felt it when I was a kid, the government don't want you to be black. I remember talking a little bit to lingo when I was in primary school and the teacher going, don't, hey, English, don't don't say that here. And I was just saying gammon, like, mm. ah, you got no judges on, like, to my cousin, he had no jocks on. I said, you got no judges on, you're gammon, hey, look at this gammon. And we just started laughing and, um, yeah, got told off. And I, And that stuff still happens today. It's just, you know, it needs to be under our terms, I feel like. If we're going to do anything, like, it just needs to be under our terms yeah. and by people who we put forward to do it. You know, yeah. we've got the sort of native title bodies there in place. Everybody votes for those people to get in. Get in. So, you know, that's one sort of way we yeah. can... I also think it definitely starts within ourselves as well. Like, I know just listening to you talk... I'm reflecting on my own cultural identity and like there's some aspects like I would never ever deny that I'm black and I'm always proud to announce that but there's definitely I think that fear in me that when the generation above me does pass like my dad pop like um, how does that knowledge transfer and that does have a significant impact on our mental health and then therefore when you're feeling those emotions you're feeling I guess a disconnect or that idea of fear or guilt or different sorts of emotions, it can manifest in different ways mm. and almost like be quite a volcano where our, we're seeing our youth just implode because there's yeah. not that connection. Um, oh, sorry, I no, was going to say too, like there's this, there's this thing that government doesn't really address. Like in Queensland, you know, we have the stolen wages, mm. but it, they haven't talked about how the trickle-on effect has occurred because mm. stolen wages is only of our parents. <laughs> yeah, it's only our parents' generation. You know what I mean, and that and their parents' generation. So you've got two to three generations above them that weren't able to um, have any. Um, you know, we're getting two thirds less than the white counterparts. They're not saving money, so there's this. You know, they're passing on that level of poverty to the next generation, doing just as much work as non-Indigenous people, but the the poverty is being passed down. And, mm. and then it gets to this generation where now you're seeing, you know, three generations in and all the dysfunctions that come with not having, you know, food to eat or... Um, roof over the head. Roof over the head or being so stressed that you don't know how to parent and the, the flow-on effect from not just the stolen generation, but just in our, like I keep saying, in our parents' generation where the young fellas in Sherbrooke, would, young people would get taken to the dormitory, you know, the boys in the girls' dormitory, away from their parents. So it creates this thing where, you know, they're getting taken to dormitory, they're getting abused in the dormitory, they, they go back to their parents, they're young adults, but then they've been trained up to be domestics or, or work on cattle stations, so they mm. go do that. They come back, they have kids, 
they don't know how to be parents because they they weren't taught that from their own parents. They mm. they got got it beaten into them how to you know um, behave and how to um, act and trying to um, you know how to assimilate mm. properly. So then you get to this generation and you know everything that every. Uh, you know, I said the other day, I think I put a post up, I was like, everything that is here in this country now and everything that's happening to Aboriginal people and all this is everything that white Australians who were part of, you know, the last 250 years at every point, it's everything that their ancestors hoped it would be and mm. and more, you know. So it's... And so when you see governments not, not looking to address certain issues with Aboriginal people or giving us the... Uh, Autonomy, it's it's a very real um, it's a very real and very deliberate act, you mm-hmm. know, to to make sure that we stay in a position of um, oppression. Oppression, yeah. Yeah, um, we are running out of time, and I fear we have absolutely just touched the ter- surface of what you could give us. But um, to kind of send us out, what sort of a message that you would like to give? our young mob who may be listening and can resonate with your story or who potentially are, you know, just lacking direction or seeking that direction? Yeah, I think the main thing to realise is that, you know, if you're listening, there's, like, I never, when I, when I was a kid and my role model, one of my role models was my older cousin who had been through hell and back ended up on heroin, was an armed robber, and he was my role model, you know, when I was like 10, 11, and he was on Australia's Most Wanted, and all these older, not just family members, but people in my community, white people, people of different um, ethnicities that, that were in, in this same low socioeconomic area that I looked up to because I had no other role models, um, to think that I've I've now I've been around the world. The jobs that I've worked in, in really high positions um, within, you know, um, the performing arts and, and toured around the world with music and, and about to release two or three albums. Um, I never would have dreamt that I would be there. I still pinch myself to this day every time when I just wake up. And if, if I'm interstate, I would be like, whoa. Mm. I'll post a picture about this because I know there's like a brothers and sisters that have never been outside their community. So mm. they're like, oh, wow, holy guacamole. And I think um, the thing that I would say is Notorious B.I.G. said it the best. Sky is the limit. Like the sky is the limit. It's it's not even the limit. Like you you just have to believe. And you don't have to believe in yourself all the time. Just just enough to get you through make life. Make it till you make it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, until you until you get until until you get there, till you make it, and trying to stay in a positive mind frame always attracts um, positive energy. Mm. So you know, yeah, and I said it in a song once. I used to say, "Why me? Now it's changed to why not me? Why not you? Why can't we do what we want to do, bros? Be what we want to be." Nas taught us that in two thousand two, two thousand and three, and that's something I can never forget or never regret. Taking life into my own hands and running with it, leaving behind bad habits to rest in peace. As we piece together this puzzle, we all live. Some give, but most take. The rest of the best with what they're given and see past the mistakes. Sometimes you can spot. Sometimes you can spot them. The other times you learn the hard way. That's right, the hard way. So, you know, take those lessons that you learn by going through this hard stuff and use them to to move forward. Yeah, definitely. And make you stronger. 
We might be able to connect with the powers that be and send us out with the song that you just gave us a live version of. But um, before we go, where can we find you online? Um, Instagram, Fred Leone, Instagram. I should get on um, TikTok uh, and <laughs> Facebook. I've got a Facebook, so there's a Fred Leone music Facebook sort of thing. Yeah, deadly. Um, yeah. I'm sure we will get you back in no time on here, but we have touched on some uh, big picture items and also some tough conversations. So if you are listening and would like to seek some help, there is Lifeline, that is 13 11 14 or 13 Yarn for mob specific. But Fred, thank you so much for jumping on. I think we're going to no have worries. to get you back. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for having me. Rachel, and um, we'll hear you at nine o'clock tomorrow morning to introduce Woo-hoo. a new host. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Fred. Thank you. No more whispering in our mind. Let's talk Monday to Friday at no nine a.m. on AAA Murray Country, the National Indigenous Radio Service, and iHeart Radio. You can catch up on AAA.org.au. Proudly supported by the Community Broadcast Foundation.